It's Friday, and you've reached the Kelly Wenland Podcast. On today's podcast, we talk with Dave Carl, longtime senior executive for behavioral and mental health services and globetrotter to far off fun places. Coming up next. We are live with Dave Carl from Cigna Behavioral Health, Evernorth. How are you doing this morning, Dave? I'm great. How are you, Kelly? Good. Long time senior director. Is that your current title at uh, at Evernorth Cigna, or what is your title these days? Yeah, senior director. I'm the technology lead for behavioral health at Cigna Evernorth. That's right. You did you you started in behavioral health many years ago. Yeah. And, many, and does Evernorth still do that? Yeah. Many, <laughs> many, many years ago. Yeah. So, I mean, over 30 years with Cigna Evernorth, I've always been aligned to the behavioral business from the start all the way through. At times, I've had responsibility for other teams that were aligned to other, other parts of Cigna, um, but now almost solely focused on behavioral because there's such an emphasis on it now within Evernorth uh, as we're standing up some new products, uh, new services within the Evernorth structure that we haven't had before. So a lot of internal focus and a lot of attention that I'm giving it right now. Do you see, I, I was wondering about this with with all the unfortunate mass shootings we have in the country and the talk about different gun control measures and mental health and how that plays in. Uh, it seems like there's one thing that people can agree on is we need to put money and focus into behavioral and mental health, which I think is a great thing. Do you, do you see that yet on the insurance side? Are you seeing money coming in that will help create programs for people that need mental health, uh, counseling, Certainly. help, doctor, treatment, whatever it might be? Certainly. I mean, we're seeing, I mean, I think everyone is, is since the start of the pandemic, especially uh, we've seen, Two things, you know, a greater demand for behavioral health, mental health services, and a, a reduction of the stigma that has long been associated with uh, accessing that kind of care. Um, and that's translated to a lot more demand for healthcare around behavioral health. Uh, and we're, we're striving to meet that right now. And, uh, you know, we're not the only one in the industry trying to do that, but there is certainly greater interest from both clients, government, um, you know, other agencies, and we are looking to to meet the need as best we can. I still have a stigma around it, I would say. I had a hypnotist on LinkedIn reach out to me and say, hey, we work with exec I work with executives and I can hypnotize you and and try to help you understand, you know, all the all the things in, you know, that are going on in your mind. And I said, you know, I appreciate that. But there's so much crazy that I have upstairs that I'd locked away that I would never want anybody exposed to that. But I, I have to give credit to my my daughter probably and wife. Seems so much more 
open about their mental health, any challenges they have. And I hope that's happening around the country with people where where that is true, where people are feeling less stigma and can talk about it. I certainly come from a family where there's plenty of mental health issues um, that have impacted my mother had uh, and has depression and has it, you know, has had it for 50 years. And so I, I'm from a firsthand perspective, seeing what that does. But but I hope that is true that there's less stigma today than there was 20 years or 30 years ago. Like we're certainly seeing that. I think there's, I mean, there's a couple aspects. Certainly there are, there are cultural variations on, on that stigma. You know, Caucasian Europeans feel about it one way. Uh, Hispanics feel about it a different way. Uh, you know, Asian Americans have a different cultural background on it. So that, that can vary. Um, I think also generationally, I think the younger generation, um, I mean, we can already see how they are much much less concerned about privacy than say my our generation um look at how much they share online on social media and i think that's translating to a different um view of mental health care like they're very open about what's going on in their heads what's going what they're feeling uh whereas my generation generally is much more reserved about it so i think that you know younger generations i'm speaking very generally here armchair sociologist uh they seem to be much more willing to engage in mental health care and even share, share publicly that they're doing so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I see that. Um, our generation, Dave, not to lump you with me because I'm so oh, old. Right we're, we're exact same age, I think, or close to it anyway. Right. And I think we are. Our generation dealt with it the old fashioned way. We went and we drank. And <laughs> we, drank right? <laughs> we drink <laughs> we drink through our mental health that's the way yeah. we have and and one thing that you i wanted to talk to you about to get on more on the light side for just a moment before we get back yep. to work is um something i've i admire about you and have wanted to do is you you travel uh into europe you travel it seems like pretty regularly uh, oktoberfest in germany where there's a lot of beer drinking going on. How how do you recommend all of us for our mental health go to Germany to at least one Oktoberfest or what, where are you on that? Certainly. Uh, yes, I think cultural exploration, drinking or not, uh, is, is always good for the soul. I think I have the benefit of having a number of like longtime friends, friends I've known since grade school who now live in Europe, two in Germany, one in London, that has prompted a number of these these trips I've made to go spend time with them. I think London is fantastic. Germany, uh, we did Oktoberfest. We're actually in Stuttgart, which is close to where my friends live. It's more or less the same um, same celebration, and it it is crazy. Uh, you, know, you get in a tent. Um, they're singing. You know, it's a it, gigantic things of beer, great food, a party atmosphere. Um, and they're you know, the bands playing. They play German drinking songs, and then John Denver and other sort of you know, Americana type songs, which struck me as odd, but I don't know if you know, so, you know, the, the NFL just had a game in Germany last weekend and the state in the stands are singing John Denver, you know, take me home country. Us, you know, like it's just a, it's a party. It's just one aspect of the German, German partying is like, it's a John Denver songs. So, and I got to experience that firsthand when I was there, but yeah. And uh, also there's a, a wine festival in this town outside of Stuttgart where my friends live. Uh, we've been, we were there a couple of years ago. We're going to go again this fall. Um, and it is an atmosphere sort of like the Minnesota State Fair almost, where it's just the streets are packed. There's events, there's bands, you know, there's music going on, street vendors with food. It is, it is, um, it is something to be seen. And uh, we look forward to experiencing that again. So 
I don't know if that's what I use to cover up my repressed emotions from you know, years of, <laughs> of, of keeping things down from my generation, but uh, it certainly is a lot of fun. So yeah, that's uh, something we like to do. That's awesome. And any play, any, any event that plays John Denver, I want to be a part of. Yeah. I'm a huge John Denver fan. His name was John Dusendorf, so it's very German. Oh. I wonder if that plays into So that's his actual name was John Dusendorf. His dad was a, a military pilot. Many people know he passed away flying an experimental right. aircraft. He was a, a very high-end pilot. Happened to the airplane he was flying. The gas, the, the, on airplanes, there are gas levers, and, and you have to, on some airplanes, go from the right tank to the left tank just to maintain your weight and balance. This yep. particular aircraft had, the that switch was over a left shoulder, and so as he was... Going, he ran out of gas and he was going to switch tanks. And because his momentum was kind of going to the left, he ended up turning, I think, stalling and spinning. Oh, wow. So that was a, anyway, he's a world class pilot. He was. And, uh, and of course, and a musical his, icon in Germany. So, well, you know what? He, he's and a musical icon everywhere. And yeah. you know, that's, <laughs> I love John Denver. Well, that's cool. We should all get to uh, to Europe and and experience yeah. that. I certainly hope that I get to at some point. And um, although I'm not a beer drinker because of because of my gout, <laughs> everybody, I'm announcing online, I have gout. Okay, right. Don't tell you the do the wine festival. Then that's a lot of fun. Yes, too. I do. Yeah. I do manage. I do manage it by uh, just by not drinking beer. Basically, <laughs> so that's the good news. Right. Back to uh, back to work. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about the concept or the, this thing we see in corporate America where as a as a manager, senior manager, executive, you get people put on your team. You really don't get to handpick like a, a football team or hockey team. You get to pick your players. You yeah. can do that based on your own personality and what you see in people. And Sorry, that's my my dog. I can see my dad parked out front and <laughs> in the these the posh studio that uh, that we have here uh for i4 and myself. Yeah. So you don't get to pick your team. You end up getting a team picked for you. And uh is that happening for you at Cigna Evernorth and and how do you deal with that? Yeah, I, I imagine that happens you know, a lot of places, especially big corporations where there's, you know, or, or some sort of reorg or something prompts a leadership change. Um, you know, you're getting elevated to take over a team and you're, you're inheriting a team. Um, often somebody else is, has decided either you're, they're leaving people in place and you're taking over the lead role or they're, you know, some executive leader is aggregating a new team together, putting you in, in charge. And you're, you know, that your, your leads have essentially been assigned to you. Um, and, you know, that can that can pose a number of challenges. You know, there's sort of just this straight up like who's good and who's not. You know, you may be inheriting some people that you don't think are very strong and you got to figure out, all right, how am I going to manage that? Are they really in the right role? Do I have to coach them up? Do I have to figure out a way to squeeze them out somehow? You know, rarely in these scenarios are you you're never really given a blank check to just start from scratch, even a college football head coach or any sporting coach can like turn over the team in a couple of years through recruiting. That's not really feasible the way most enterprises and HR structures are set up. So, um, so you've got, you know, the sort of the performance issue. You've got, you know, the straight up 
diversity question. You know, I, you know, all of us are on board with diversity of thought, diversity of talent. Um, and you don't know if you're necessarily getting a good mix uh, when you're first being assigned a team. So you may be on board with trying to get, you know, you know different balances of talent. Um, but it, you may not be starting out with that. You may be starting out with a bunch of white dudes. You got to figure out, right, how am I going to make this work? How am I going get, to get the right, you know, diversity of thought within this group over time? Uh, and then I say, you know, it, oh, go, go ahead, Kelly. Sorry. Oh, I, it just, it was, that's interesting to me. Do you think it, is it harder to, this is more around top performers versus low performers, which, you know, every team has, has both of those. Is it yeah, harder? All our team has somebody batting ninth. So, right. Yeah. yeah. Is it harder to manage the top performers who are, not focused on the vision or is it harder to manage low performers that just aren't very motivated to work? I think, I mean, I think ultimately the lower performers are the harder challenge, but you know, th that doesn't mean that the top performers are, you know, uh, a free ride for you as a leader. You know, there, there are challenges there. And, you know, like you're hinting at, like, you know, are they on board with you know what I as the leader am thinking about where this group needs to go? And it's not necessarily a negative thing on their part. I mean, they become maybe coming from a different part of the organization where they're, you know, they've been kicking ass for years, but now they're, you know, the fact that we're in a different place in the organization means we have to think differently about what our priorities are, uh, how we operate, you know, those types of things so that we can work as a cohesive group. Um, and, you know, that's not something you can necessarily just dictate through, you know, a one-to-one -one or, or like one meeting to somebody and like, oh, now we're all on board. All right. This is, that's, this is the kind of thing that takes time. And I think the term for this is, you know, shared context. Does everyone on the team have alignment on where we should be going, how we should be operating, what our priorities are, what our mindset are, mindset, you know, should be, uh, how do we interact with our business partners, things like that. Uh, that is, you know, I think that is something that can take time depending on how ingrained, uh, that thinking is, and again, I'm not saying it's inherently negative. It's just, it's different. Um, especially if you've got, you know, a large organization that has sort of different pockets of different cultures and you try to bring those together. Uh, you may have inherited a team now that's come from these disparate parts of the company and you got to get them thinking, you know, we're going this way now. We're not going like this. Even if, you know, we ultimately get down here, we, we need to work this way to get there as quickly as possible. Uh, how do you paint that vision? How do you paint that vision for them? Is it is it communication? Is it getting everybody together and saying, "Here's what we're doing and why"? Or is it is it just saying, "Here's what we're doing, get on board"? Elon Musk, right? I, I, we see on Twitter, right? I mean, Elon Musk is, and it's really interesting to me to see how that's going to work out because that's clearly a an example of a. This is he hasn't even painted a vision of what's going to happen. He's just said, "You better be ready to work your ass off, and if you're not, get out." I mean, so. Yeah. But he yeah, has not, said, yeah, it, will I'm that, not, we, yeah. Sorry, I, I'm not sure that, I don't know, the dictatorial approach may work there. And I don't, that wouldn't work like where, where I come from um, and where we work. So, you know, I think you achieve this. I mean, it, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take time. I mean, you need to sort of get collective agreement on some, some key elements of what the shared context is. Uh, and then just you repeat. All right. Um, I think it's, you know, multiple times getting together face to face, probably, uh, you know, which, you know, are the way work environments are now like that doesn't always happen on a day to day basis. Um, especially if you've got, a, you know, if you're a large company where people are all over the country, 
Um, you know, and you've got a leadership group that's spread out. Uh, you got to you know pick your times to actually get together and you know make this a priority. Like we're going to talk about what our shared context needs to be. We talked about it once. We got agreement on what the core elements are. Let's hit it again. Let's hit it again. Let's hit it again. You know, it could take a year or more um, to really to really change cultural mindsets, you know, cultural mindsets that can develop within a large organization, especially one where there are acquisitions, mergers, whatever. You know, people started with entirely different you know, companies and now we're all one. How do you get them? How do you get that alignment? Yeah. And I would say like with, with low performers, I don't, I find that 99% of the time I, it's not the people that lack the skill or, or aren't naturally maybe even good in a particular spot that I have trouble with, because as long as people show up and are good teammates and want to learn and want to be valuable, I can almost always figure out how to make that happen. Um, once you spend enough time with them, that the bigger problem is like truly in get, getting people engaged, you know, maybe they had bad management early, maybe they're, you know, at a point in their life where they're, you know, they're just not that motivated and they want to do a minimum at work. That's the more challenging for, for me is to figure out how do you get that person to to really buy into this vision and why it's important enough for them to maybe spend, you know, 10 or 20% more energy um, for the next year, you know, getting getting on board with it. Right. Yeah, I think it's always, I mean, in this sort of at a certain level, you know, obviously there these people demonstrated excellence and, you know, superior competence to get to, a, you know, a certain point in the organization, but you know, perhaps they did get overpromoted at some point, you know, but more likely is they, they know what to do, but like you say, like they're, they're under motivated for whatever you like, maybe they think they should be career wise in a different spot than they are. And that's, you know, that's sort of clouding their judgment or their mindset or their motivation. Um, you know, maybe, maybe they're at the right level, but not necessarily the right spots, the right role. They should be in a, it's like a different type facing or, you know, role or, you know, something, something along those lines. Then it can be more about like tweaking the assignment and the role as opposed to like just forcing the person out or something like that. Um, you know, they, they probably got the right, you know, skills that you can benefit from just get them focused in the right, the right way. Yeah. I always think that's a lot of times more on me, more on the organization, you know, the leadership to figure that out and to create the right environment than it is on that person, you know, and then, and then once you've really worked hard to do that, you know, then the person of course has to step up. But, but usually if you, if you do your job as a leader, people respond to that. So that's cool. Yeah. Good. Well, Dave, we keep them short here. Thanks so much for your time. You're, you've got, you've led an interesting life going to Europe and, and uh, you got some great things happening there with Evernorth. Really appreciate you talking to us about behavioral health. And uh, you are all listening to the Kelly Wendland podcast. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Kelly. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Yeah.